Welcome to More to Come, PW Comics World, weekly podcast of comics and graphic novel news. This is Heidi McDonald. I'm a little hoarse. It's very cold here. I'm in Toronto. It's 39 degrees. Uh, that's four Celsius, as I've learned. Um, and uh, so a little choked up, uh, bundled up again. I'm here with Glenn Downey, uh, who is a writer, an educator, uh, and very busy man here at TCAF. Uh, Glenn, but uh, can you tell me your title, please? Uh, yeah, I'm the, the outgoing uh, chair of English and Drama. I teach at a school right here on Young Street, just up the street from us, an independent school, uh, a fantastic school called the York School. And uh, we have a couple of campuses in Toronto, and we're a K-12 institution. And I teach in the International Baccalaureate Program. Next year, I'm taking on a role, um, which is the Chair of Strategic Thinking in the school. And that's somebody who's responsible for looking very closely at the strategic direction Mm -hmm. of the school. I see. Uh, So K-12. But you also have a specialty, which is that you you use a lot of comics in your teaching, or you've been then integrating them. Like like, tell tell me the origin. Okay, yeah. what about you in comics, Glenn? So okay, so let's go back, <laughs> very far back into the past. Um, I read a lot of comics as a kid. That that's mm-hmm. that that's just the case. And the interesting thing is is that uh, I read. Once I go back and I start to think about it, I read a lot of works in which there was a marriage of the textual and the visual. Mm-hmm. So I didn't only read uh, things like uh, comics. I read things like Two Minute Mysteries and Encyclopedia Brown, right, where you're reading these stories and there's little illustrations and there's a clue in them. I'm trying to solve the mystery right. and you're flipping to the back. Uh, I graduated to Choose Your Own Adventure Stories, where, again illustration, text, you know, trying to solve moving in different ways through a text, and then uh, fantasy role-playing games, Dungeons and Dragons, right? Highly visual and also highly textual um, uh, works, and I was immersed in those sorts of things. When I went off to university, uh, specifically when I was in the latter part of my undergrad and then in grad school, uh, what area did I go into? Not surprisingly, ludology, so game studies. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think in large part, I was inspired by those reading experiences. And specifically, when I was a little guy, I was often um, told that I read below my grade level. Really? And I was often encouraged that I was a very strong reader, but was somehow choosing to read below my grade level. I can remember an encounter with a librarian at school one time who said, oh, Glenn, you're such a good little reader. You should really <laughs> challenge yourself. Because I was taking out, like, Encyclopedia Brown Saves the Day for the right. 15th time. Right. And even then, I was probably 10 years old, even then I thought, you're wrong. <laughs> because... I knew that because I read things like that, because I you know, immersed myself in comics and fantasy role-playing games and all that sort of stuff, and I loved it, and I kept reading, that I knew that that was right. Mm-hmm. And my mom also, I mean, she never sort of said to me, you should challenge yourself. That always came sort of from outside. So I knew that what I was reading um, was good and that it was kind of laying a foundation for what I would do later. In my own teaching practice, um, yeah, I use comics far more than, than probably educators uh, would. I teach in the International Baccalaureate Program, mm-hmm. which is really the most challenging <laughs> program that you can have. 
uh, for kids in, in K-12. So I teach IB, that means a, a diploma program. I teach grade 11 and 12. And um, the ages just for... Yeah, they would be uh, you know, 16, 17. Yeah, just for people like me who didn't go to school. <laughs> yeah. And uh, so in IB, uh, I teach uh, IB literature, really hard course. Uh, in the literature and translation unit, I only teach visual narrative. Mm-hmm. And I see. Yeah. So I teach in that unit. I teach uh, Persepolis, mm-hmm. and I teach Aya mm-hmm. by Marguerite Abouet, and I teach Jirotanaguchi's uh, 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 A Distant Neighborhood. Right. Um, and that has been so important, I think, in developing in, in young kids who who are given a kind of vocabulary for talking about literature and that sort of thing as they move throughout their studies in developing a whole new range of, of right. vocabulary, sure. a new way of seeing reading right. um, that they wouldn't otherwise have been exposed to. The other thing that I do with them it, that I'm a big proponent of that is derived specifically from visual narrative is sketchnoting. Mm-hmm. And sketchnoting has been a, an incredible way to unlock uh, what is in a kid's mind before they have to take that crazy scramble in mm-hmm. their head and, and articulate it in some sort of linear fashion. Right. And uh, it's been incredibly powerful. It's not forcing kids to become artists. It's getting them to articulate whatever's in, in their head. Right. It's a form of, it's a form of journaling. It's just a form yeah, of visual thinking, like it's, just it's, doodling. It's, 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 it is it's, it's, doodling. Is sketch noting doodling good? It is. Yeah. That's right. It, it is, right? That, it's that thing. It's that thing that where maybe when you or I were younger and we were sitting there in class and making a little drawing in a margin mm-hmm. or something that we might have had our knuckles wrapped mm-hmm. for. Right. Like, Stop doodling. Right. Um, but this, I tell, no, doodle. Like, and, and some of the kids will, I, you know, will like identify with the fact that maybe they don't have an artistic mm-hmm. inclination. I'm like, that's great. You just fill that page with words, with mm-hmm. arrows, with things that, that just show me what's in your brain. Interesting. And it's amazing. Kids will work hours on these things in, in, in note-taking, and they won't uh, in any way um, care whether there's a mark attached to it, whether there's an evaluative thing right. in, in, in play. It's just this great opportunity to get them to express themselves. Yeah. Um, that, see, it's very interesting. I mean, I've known that you were involved with comics and education, and... Uh, uh, you know, we've talked about it, but but I think what's most interesting to me is that you're not teaching a course on comics. <laughs> you're using comics in your, yeah. you know, as you say, your baccalaureate. Um, I, I mean, has there been pushback to this? I mean, did you have to, you know, say, I'm not yeah. crazy? I mean, how many times a day do you have to say that? <laughs> yeah. Um, among educators that I, that I teach with, no. Um, whenever I have discussions with them, uh, they're... Um, uh, hesitance or, or reticence when it, when it comes to using um, comics is never one of oh I don't teach using comics yeah, right. like, I teach real literature right. um, I never get that what I get is um, always I'm not sure that I would do a very good job because I don't quite understand sure. the form right. and, and that's been interesting in terms of parents I very rarely will get challenged on the idea 
Um, I, I, I can recall maybe one conversation in the mm -hmm. course of my entire career where a, a parent raised that kind of issue, that traditional kind mm -hmm. of, you know, sure. like, oh, you know, using comics, and is that as good as teaching them David Copperfield and that right. sort of thing. Um, but I find that they're, they're always operating, I think, from a position of not fully understanding or recognizing right. what... Um, teaching comics and, and what teaching visual narrative, all the, the sort of attendant goodness that comes out of that in, for, a, for a kid. Right, right. Uh, how long have you been doing this? Oh, wow. Well, um, in terms of using uh, comics in the classroom, I've been doing it for a long time. Right. So you, know. you once you, you started teaching, you just got started doing it? You yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I've taught... <laughs> Rebel with a cause. Yeah, that's bit. right. And yeah. I mean, I've taught a sort of a range of, of, of different uh, visual narratives. And, um, and it's been really, I think, immensely successful. I think one of the things is, is that when, we, when you uh, use a comic with students, they're forced to look uh, at the actual <laughs> visual and textual field in front of them, their first inclination when they're given an assignment is not to go and find information about it. Mm -hmm. Because, for one thing, often there's far less information right. about a comic sure. that's available. There's no master plots or the, you know, right. uh, cliff notes. I really. mean, I'm sure Mouse and Persepolis are developing those kinds of things. Cause sure. just, but, you know, you teach kid, uh, a kid a, a distant neighborhood, and now in order to make sense of things, or, or Aya, for instance, and I teach it those specifically as works in translation. Mm -hmm. Now kids have to explore, and we explore with them, I explore with them the culture and the context, for instance, mm -hmm. of Aya. They become experts on what the Ivory Coast was like in the 1970s. Right. And what... Um, what visual representation means. I was showing the other day in, in presentation that I was giving that you, you uh, attended, you know, that the way a, a kid can write about literature when they're exposed and given a vocabulary, yes. that they learn specifically from comics, from film, from visual media, and allow that to uh, allow them to apply that. Um, and not just a visual narrative, to, to literature as well. They, they develop ways of looking and seeing how characters are looking at one another. You know, I, I, I think what's most uh, striking about what you're saying is, you know, you talking about how you were drawn to these Encyclopedia Brown type of visual. And I mean, kids love that. I mean, Wimpy Kid is like one of the... And sure. amazingly, it does manage to survive in translation in other countries, which a lot of those child narratives, you know, that are kind of localized, don't always, but um, I, I'm looking at my own background, and uh, even though I couldn't draw, I was, was definitely a doodler all the time, and uh, maybe, yeah, I mean, there was definitely a, you know, always comics were my favorite thing, um, and yeah, there was this calendar that was like little cartoons that I took with me everywhere I went. Um, is there a... Um, Boy, I mean, we've talked about this so much, me and, and, you know, people as comics rise. And, I mean, the form is very uh, natural to humans, you know. Mm -hmm. it, and, like, when people say they have to be taught it, I mean, it's certainly a narrative like A Distant Neighborhood is much, so much more complex than doodles, you know. Mm -hmm. um, but it is a language that everybody doodles. Everybody, you know, like, almost everybody has, they have, it's very human, you know, it's very innate uh, behavior. Um, so what, what are, I mean, what do you see as the parameters of, like, people like us who think so naturally this way, 
uh, and it is still a little bit. Um, it's not the norm, you know. Right. I'm, this is a long question. So I guess what is the integration that you see? Because it yeah. is a different way of, of thinking, definitely. Yeah. I mean, we de- and, and, and there are people who are purely visual and can't, you know, write at all. Right. But I mean, it's different kinds of literacy. Yeah, uh, it absolutely is. Um, but I think what has happened and the, the sort of awakening that needs to happen is that... Um, when you say comics and when you say education and, and, and when you're talking about the, the use of, of that particular form, people are, are thinking about it in a very narrow kind of context. They're thinking about something that sprung up in their mind sometime in the latter part of the 19th century. Mm-hmm. And they think of newspaper comics and punch and they think mm-hmm. of you know Theodore Geisel's war illustrations and, mm-hmm. and, and cartoons and that sort of thing. And they're thinking about that in a, in a very kind of narrow range. I would say most people really think of it started with Spider-Man and Stan <laughs> okay, and Jack okay. and you know, Fair Steve enough, did go. Right. Action so, comics number. Yeah. So yeah, people yeah. who are thinking about the yellow kid are already far beyond. Yeah, yeah, but but yeah. still, okay, yes, but yes, still. yes, yes. But what they're not always thinking of, and even those who are thinking of, of, of you know the early 20th century, what they're not necessarily thinking of is that visual narrative is something that has informed them and informed us and, and not simply our culture, mm-hmm. all cultures, yes. for, for, for such uh, a long period of time. I mean, you have cave art, you have Egyptian wall paintings, you have the Bayou Tapestry, right. you have Hogarth's A Rake's Progress, you have a tradition in art of telling a story over a series of paintings. And you have, uh, I think, most sort of uh, powerfully for some, though they don't realize it, you know, every time you walk into a Christian church, you have the stations of the cross lining sure. the walls. But they don't think about the fact that, that, because they don't make those two connections. And I think it's important in establishing the legitimacy of comics and the legitimacy of, of, of reading a world in that way that you that you have to establish that connection and that tradition, right. or they see it as something that is without tradition mm-hmm. and therefore not serious. Well, I think, I think it's also, um, I mean, certainly we're going through such a paradigm shift now with, with the internet and with, you know, and Scott McLeod, I know you interviewed him last year, yeah. I think here at, at TCAP, and, right. you know, Scott and I have talked for years about about you know using this kind of visual symbol symbology. Hello, Robert Langdon. But um, you know visual symbolism and and how it communicates, and you know what the, the kind of the internet has brought this kind of of visual literacy much more to the fore, where you need to be able to look at this page and you know find find how to get more information and how to use that. Um, so I, I, you know, I mean, do you do you think that I mean, was Scott right about that? I mean, you know, do you think that kind of visual literacy is a is a shift? I mean, you know, we were talking yesterday about uh, uh, cranky pe- people who don't like new media, and uh, you know, my favorite story about that is how when they began to write things down in ancient Greece, you know, they were like, look, everybody's going to forget, you know, because you had to memorize everything at that point. It's like, how are we keeping our traditions? Nobody's going to need to memorize anything anymore, you know. So, <laughs> I think that, that uh, especially when it comes to visual literacy, that sometimes the, the mistake that we make is we assume uh, we make a couple of, of broad assumptions. I think one is that that students' uh, visual literacy 
is uh, far surpasses our own yes. because they inhabit this kind of now visual of course, landscape. Of course, the kids know how to get onto the you know right. iPad way before the parents. But in actual fact, when you look at, for instance, something like our own Ontario Secondary School Literacy Test, you'll often find uh, the case that when kids have to deal with questions that specifically rate, uh, relate to a visual text, mm -hmm. so a set of a diagram that has a series of instructions or something that they have to follow, that they actually will do poorly. Mm -hmm. And that is because perhaps that although that they're good in identifying and quickly moving from you know one platform or image to the next and that sort of thing, and have a facility in terms of uh, their their movement from image to image in terms of processing and deeply taking out because those questions in the literacy test are designed to get the kid to infer to extract right. things right. that are deeper than just a surface understanding of what's right. in front of them that they have a difficult time with that. Mm -hmm. I think they wouldn't if there was a more concerted effort to assist them right. with this visual right. landscape. Sure. We just assume that they're experts because we see them texting and they're moving right. so fast and that's right. Sort of thing. We assume that they they're... need the education to help understand that visual landscape that right. they're interesting. So much a part of, yeah. Very interesting. What um, what are uh, like you mentioned? Um, uh, you know, you teach Persepolis, and uh, what were the other ones that you teach? Aya. Aya and, and uh, uh, just Could you just, uh, in case um, any of our listeners aren't familiar with those books, I, I think yeah. we all know Persepolis, so sure. we'll skip that. Uh, uh, Marjan Satrapi's uh, memoir of her growing up in Iraq, uh, Iran. But uh, yeah, can you talk a little bit about those two books and what, what, what makes them great teaching uh, material? Yeah, they're uh, uh, amazing. I think Aya, the, 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 the thing that I used to lead into uh, Aya is um, uh, Chimamanda and Dice's The Danger of a Single Story. If, mm -hmm. if people have not found out that uh, a video, it's a TED Talk where she talks about the danger of having a single narrative about a people, mm -hmm. about her growing up reading Western books and thinking that the only characters that could be in Western books were characters who um, uh, lived in the snow mm -hmm. and were white and, and right. that sort of thing. And her whole thing is this whole notion of the danger of a single story and about how people have one narrative about Africa. And the, the fascinating thing is that when you begin to read Aya uh, as a Westerner, you look at it and you say, hmm, there's no war. There's no famine. There's no child soldiers. Right. Yeah. There's, there, 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 there's class, mm -hmm. and there are people whose, whose circumstances are, are, but there isn't, there doesn't seem to be abject mm -hmm. poverty. What is this narrative? Well, lo and behold, it's a narrative written by an Ivorian writer mm -hmm. who is who's blowing apart that that notion of a single story. And that, I think, is what, I mean, it's a story of like, of uh, young women growing up and having, you know, um, disagreements like w with their, you know, fathers about going to university mm -hmm. or, or wanting to subscribe to those traditional gender roles and right. that sort of thing and get married and have babies and that sort of thing. And so you're reading the, the, the graphic novel and you're realizing that, hey, this reads in some ways like a 
Western graph. Right. Isn't that fascinating? Right. And so that I think is 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 fascinating. When you take the Ivory Coast and you look at where it was in the 1970s, it wasn't in uh, a terribly bad place. It was it was quite uh, it was sort of booming mm-hmm. and it was doing things that other African countries weren't. And so I think that is is the power of teaching mm-hmm. that text. The distant neighborhood is just so good in terms of. Um, I think it uh, awakens kids uh, culturally to certain things um, that that they would otherwise uh, be unaware of. The fact is that central character, this this guy who I don't want to give away too much of the story. But let's say he gets on the wrong train at the beginning of the story, right. ends up instead of going home, going to his hometown where he grew up, and then and again this isn't giving too much away. He ends up transforming into his sort of 14-year-old mm, self, right? And then, and finding himself back in that time and living his life again, trying to find out why his father left. Mm-hmm. But so it's a little a Peggy Sue got married, uh, Back to the Future. But it's, it's yeah, yeah, yeah it, 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 it moves. So as non-linear narrative, it's so important. Um, the whole idea: is it a building's roman? Is it a coming-of-age story? It, can you be coming of age if you're? still retain the sensibilities of a 48-year-old man transformed. There's a bit of a Lolita kind of element because now he falls in love again with a girl he would never have talked to. Right. But also culturally, you know, he gets on that train and 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 I, I get students to all these sort of fascinating things where, you know, he gets on the train at the beginning and the woman says, are, are you on the wrong train? Because she, she senses he's confused. Oh, no, no, I'm, I'm perfectly fine. And we get into sort of, you know, Japanese notions of saving face right. and, and, and that sort of thing. Like kids did research and they're like, you know what, he would have had to have had a paid, uh, he would have had a specific seat mm-hmm. on the correct train, and therefore he's embarrassed in revealing the fact right. that he's sitting in the wrong seat, mm-hmm. right? So this sort of thing that I think, and, and you know, that you can teach all of the classics and, and that sort of thing, but there's so much richness in these texts. Mm-hmm. Right, and you know, I have to, the, uh, the Aya series, uh, published by Jonah Quarterly, it's written by, and I'm going to not, my French is terrible, it's written by Margaret Abouet, right? Yeah. And uh, drawn by Clement Aubery. That's correct. Who is a French artist. And uh, they are still in print. I think there's a collected edition. There was actually three of them. They're really wonderful. And I have to say, that uh, there aren't that many, very sadly, there aren't that many narratives of African life uh, that aren't, um, you know, like there's a book that everybody's talking about here, Child Soldier. <laughs> And it's a great book, but I think you could figure out what it's about. I mean, it's got you know scenes in it of that would make the Walking Dead look tame, and it really happened. So, uh, yeah, it's great to have this narrative that is um, uh, reminds us that there's there's another life. What 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 aspect? Now I am going to ask what aspect of Persepolis do you teach? You know, what is the? Again, we teach it as a, a, a work in translation, uh, so we look very closely. At a number of things, we look at the Iranian Revolution. I was so fortunate this year to have a student um, uh, whose parents grew up during the time of the revolution. I mean, that's another great thing, right? right? You have a, a, a student in, 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 in that sort of situation who can speak so eloquently and mm-hmm. so knowledgeably, looking at things like the, the symbolic nature of, of so much of Satrapa's drawings, um, and looking at um, the original French. Mm-hmm. And the, that's another wonderful thing that you can do when you're teaching a text in translation is that you can look at the subtle differences that when it goes from, let's say, the original French 
um, to English. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's a scene in Aya where in one of the translations, um, the, the, the brother is chastising the, the, the sister for going out because he suspects she's not going out to study. Mm-hmm. She's going out to party. Oh. But in the other translation, he can't believe that she's going out to do math. Right. Right? So you get a whole other kind of resonance. Uh, in Persepolis as well, looking at like, um, and this was the fascinating thing that, that, this, that um, uh, my student Cash brought up. He said, you know, a lot of people, if they're reading Persepolis, they might not understand Margie's, they might just think it's this sort of symbolic thing, her relationship with God or mm-hmm. the Muslim. But he said, as a Muslim, it, it's, it's, it's the case that uh, a young person would have a relationship with God which is very different from a Christian child's relationship sure. with their God. That it, it would, it, it, God would be seen as much more of a friend mm-hmm. to, a, to a certain age, and then beyond that age would be seen to be more of that powerful divine right. being. Right. Whereas I, growing up in, in a Catholic family, I always saw God as this big, powerful... Yes, yes, threatening. And that helps you. That's why we teach the, wor- the, the work in translation. That helps to, you to see why her connection with God, why it's so, um, her, her breaking away from God in, in, in the graphic novel is almost like a, like a broken friendship. It's heartbreaking. Mm-hmm. She's like, she shuns him because she discovers that the world is, you right. know, such a, is, is rapidly becoming such a, a problematic place. Right. Well, there certainly are a lot of, uh, you know, really rich texts that are in comics mm-hmm. and, uh, that provide food for thought, uh, and so many different aspects. I mean, you know, certainly Taniguchi, uh, he's really, I guess he's kind of a cult, uh, cartoonist here, I'd say. His books are published mostly by, uh, Fanfare, Planet Mon, and NBM. He has a new book out about the Louvre, actually, that NBM put out. Uh, and it, they're right. always very thoughtful. They're very, very much about that interior, interior journey. And he, he gives them, um, you know, this visualization that's, that's very interesting. Well, Glenn, I think we could talk about this all day. But uh, you and I both have panels to rush off to. Uh, but, yeah, no, but what, 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 is, uh, what do you think of TCAF, though? Have you been coming here all along? Or what, what's, you know? Uh, just for the last few years, and I mean, you know, sometimes just merely as a spectator. Last year, obviously, I was on a, uh, a wonderful panel with uh, George O'Connor and uh, Raina Tuckemeyer and, and, and Scott McLeod. Uh, that dealt with our sort of formative reading experiences mm-hmm. and how that, that sort of shaped us. And I was able to interview Scott uh, last year for The Sculptor. Uh, I love this. I think that, that this is a, one of those very kinds of, of, of special conferences where you're not waiting in line for 20 minutes right. with your $50 bill in hand getting right. somebody to sign something, but you can just walk right up and, and talk to all these wonderfully gifted creators. You learn so much of, uh, from them and about them, I think, in this kind of sort yeah. of intimate Yeah, it's really extraordinary. Um, and uh, I'm glad to have a chance to sit down and chat with you. More to, more to comment this, as we like to say, because uh, I'm sure, in Glenn, in your new position of strategic thinking, yes. there'll be a lot more thinking and a lot more strategy. <laughs> so, uh, indeed. Well, Glenn, thank you so much for joining us today. You're very welcome.